Hey, this is Neil Mackay, your host of a Vietnam podcast. Now, before we get started on this episode, I wanted to share with you about one of my favorite affiliate partners, and that is Fiverr. I've been using Fiverr for years for everything from ordering YouTube thumbnails to keyword research, writing podcast articles, even to Canva designs and thumbnails and more. So whether you're a budding entrepreneur, a podcaster, or anyone in between, Fiverr has got you covered. It really is the go-to platform if you want to find freelancers offering a massive range of services to help you on any project. Maybe you need a stunning new logo or just a short animation, whatever you need, you can find it on Fiverr. What I love the most is how easy Fiverr makes it to connect with talented freelancers from around the world, all at prices that will fit whatever your budget is. Plus, with Fiverr's secure payment system, you can trust that your transactions are safe and secure. No dodgy people you meet on Facebook groups that disappear with your money and never give you what you want. What, that's only happened to me? As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you use the link and at no extra cost to you. As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you click my link and you buy something, all at no extra cost to you. And best of all, you will be directly supporting the making of this podcast that you're listening to for free, but it is not free to make. So why we head over to somewhere that you've probably never been before. It's called the show notes. So whatever app you're listening in, if it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anything at all, head to the show notes, click on my special link, and then you can browse thousands of gigs ready to help you with your next project. And now, let's dive into today's episode. Let's go. So anyone who's lived in Saigon will know that the expat world uh, is relatively small and today's guest is a great example of that because um, I'd, I'd heard his name before, had been mentioned to me as a, as a singer-songwriter by J.K. Hobson, previous guest on the show, but I'd never met him before and then I saw him just last week perform at the House of Royalty and tell a really funny, entertaining story which we might hear a little bit of. And then um, out of the blue, just a few days ago, he messaged me through Ella Beth who's another previous guest, has a bit of a connection and um, we got talking and he's now a guest on 7 Million Bites, a Saigon podcast. So thank you for joining me, Stuart Gatsi. Oh, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for reaching out. It's always exciting when someone uh, wants to be part of the show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I heard uh, a lot of good things and, and uh, I felt like I definitely needed to be a part of it, be a part of the good work. You don't need to say that. You don't need to butter me up. <laughs> Uh, oh, you know, I was, I was thinking maybe dinner and a movie. <laughs> so you're originally from Zimbabwe, and you told a very entertaining story about that. And when I first saw you, do you, do you want to just share that in a very brief way with, uh, with our listeners? Yeah, so so I, I, I was born in Zimbabwe, uh, as, as you know by now. Um, and when I was young, I, I moved to the U.S. And, and so... The entire experience exposed 
my lack of knowledge of the world, and also at the same time, I discovered other people's lack of knowledge of the world. So I basically grew up in middle-class Zimbabwe, which when people imagine Africa, they don't really think of a middle-class, you know, think of the typical image, wild animals running around, and maybe dentists from America coming around to shoot them. Um, and so I moved to the U.S. I, uh, I was about 17 at the time, just turned 17. And um, so I get a lot of weird questions. You know, I, I, I'd gone there for uh, school, so make friends, and then they start asking me strange questions. Like, where are you from? I would reply by saying, well, I'm from Zimbabwe. And the general response would be, but you speak so well. Um, and that, you know, things like that started to expose uh, things to me about the world that I maybe thought I knew. I was certainly very naive about America um, moving there. Um, for example, I just, like everybody else living uh, in the world, I just thought America was Hollywood. So I thought immediately when I got to America, I'd be rich, I'd have rims, I'd see all my WWE heroes that I grew up watching. Um, and then I got there, I was like, oh, they're just people uh, like us, they're rich people, they're poor people, people without running water even. Rural Alabama. Um, but these were all things that I realized I was uh, uneducated about. Uh, and at the same time, I also saw uh, the reverse in, in how people were uneducated about Zimbabwe and Africa. Interesting how it goes both ways, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it definitely does go both ways. Um, and, and, you know, something like, for example, a very good friend of mine. He asked me, uh, hey, Stuart, do you guys celebrate Thanksgiving in Zimbabwe? Uh, and so <laughs> for him, this was a normal holiday, right? So he assumed that everybody had some form of Thanksgiving in their country. And at this point, I had reached a point where I just had enough with the silly questions in my mind. So I said to him very sarcastically, hey, Ryan, uh, I understand what you mean and what you're trying to get at, but we didn't murder our native population, so we don't need to celebrate this holiday. <laughs> um, and I said this with a smile on my face, so he wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't too offended. Uh, he knew I was joking, but I, I reached a point where I just had it up to here. I was like, okay, enough is enough. Well, the thing, you know, I've lived in America, my wife's American, lots of American friends. Yeah. So they'll all admit this as well. Well, especially the ones that you meet that have left America. There's two different types of Americans, right? There's the ones who have never left and the ones who have left. They're very, very different people, right? Yeah. And the ones who have left, I've not met one Trump supporter who's <laughs> left America, right? So that tells you everything. But they realise as well, you know, that uh, America is very insular, right? And they just they don't have that sense. Of, but because they're taught from a young age that they are the centre of not just the planet, of the universe, and so that question about Thanksgiving, like, yeah, I, I can completely see that happening because there's no self-awareness that, oh, there's other cultures in other countries and, yeah, so. Yeah, I think it's, you mentioned a good point. Uh, there are people, you know, I think generally people from any country that travel more tend to be more exposed and more alert about and aware of these things. 
but but you're right also in that you know by and large people living in America uh, are taught and raised to think that they're the greatest country in the world um, even with all the problems uh, I remember you know uh, hearing one guy say the worst day in America doesn't beat the best day in the world in any other country. Um, I, I didn't necessarily agree with that, but it shows that the mindset, generally speaking. Uh, but like you say as well, it's, it's also a very diverse country. Um, there, there are many Americans that travel now, um, which, which I think is, is, is a great thing. Uh, well, I, I, I've told my American friends, and, and I was telling someone that just this week, actually, I can't remember who, and they were shocked, and they get shocked at this. I think Americans are the friendliest people I've ever met. Like, without doubt, like, they're just so kind. They're just small things like, you know, you get invited to their home. They open up their fridge. What do you want to eat? Can I drive you somewhere? Can I take you to the airport? Like, they never ask for gas money. That's probably because gas was so cheap when I lived there. Maybe it's different now. But, like, I just find them such a warm, friendly people. So, again, when you have this stereotype that we see of, of Trump supporters or right-wing people or whatever, you know, like, it's very diverse. And the... I am very bad at stereotyping them. I often do it for comedy. I know it's a joke, right. you know, but it is a very, very large and diverse population, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, you know, growing up in Kansas City, Missouri, myself, um, I can attest to that. People are amazing. You know, you're walking down the road, someone will be like, hey, how you doing? Um, if I was in another country. In Scotland, if you look at someone when you're walking down the street, they look at you and you go, what are you looking at? <laughs> Like, that's the difference, right? Like, that's when I went to America. It's like, oh, my God, they're all so friendly and nice. There's always a threat of violence in the air in Scotland, almost. <laughs> like, so, so continue, sorry. Yeah, no, no, it's okay. Uh, and, and that's true. Like, it's, it's you, know, uh, you know, growing up in the Midwest, for me, uh, used to that Midwestern hospitality. People, I, and one thing for me, for example, when I first moved to Kansas City when I was a kid, I crossing the road. People would stop and allow me to cross and wave at me and smile at me. Um, and initially, it, it's, it's a little disconcerting because you think, okay, why is a random stranger greeting me and waving at me? Am I about to be robbed? What's going on? <laughs> but, but in the end, I think it's just, um, I think it's, you know, good-natured people and, and a sense of community. I totally relate to that. You're kind of like when you're like, are you talking to me? So someone behind me? Like, who are you? Oh, you're saying hello to me? Like, yeah. yeah. But it's amazing. It's so beautiful, right? So tell me then more about, so tell me more about growing up in Zimbabwe because that's so interesting what you're saying about growing up middle class because just most people don't think of that. And I just read something this week and they were just saying like, stop with these ads. I think talking about in America and the UK, I think, you know, Africa being this, Know, poor children and blah 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 and it's like we have like a thriving middle class like we have like music and culture and art and like all this stuff but the rest of the world thinks it's just you know poverty porn is a, a big big problem right yeah and 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 look you know as was, is the case with you know, other countries you know uh, zimbabwe has its its own unique sets of challenges um however i, I think that there's maybe a lack of a spotlight on, on maybe some of the successes. Um, so, you know, um, to give you an example of, you know, the kind of environment I grew up in, uh, my, my mom was uh, an accountant um, and a businesswoman. She, you know, owned stocks and shares, just worked hard. Um, and she herself 
had actually moved from, from rural Zimbabwe. And she put herself through school. She, she went to night school while she was working and, and she kept progressing and growing. And um, we were fortunate you know, to, to, to grow up with, with a hardworking person like that. Um, and so going to school um, for me, uh, by and large, uh, I grew up going to uh, British um, centered or British curriculum schools. Uh, many of my teachers were from all over the world, um, Australia, England, uh, the US. Um, and, and we also were involved in, in many ways. Uh, I, I did a lot of uh, sports. Um, I, I loved playing soccer. Uh, when I was a kid, I did a little horse riding. Um, and so, so that was that was just normal to me. And there are many other kids around me that, that grew up with very you know similar things. Um, uh, and then, obviously, now you then take that and you assume that oh, the whole world knows that the whole world knows that we uh, you know that yes, there's there's a poor part of Africa, but there's also a thriving part in, in the middle class. And, um, but in in traveling. You, you start to find out that, that it's not quite the case. Uh, for example, I traveled to Cambodia recently. I told you the story. <laughs> I, I had to try and enter the country twice um, because the first time I got to the border, they told me, and I showed them my Zimbabwe passport. Uh, they told me, I'm sorry, uh, we've never heard of this country before. <laughs> and in my mind, I was, you know, I asked them, hey, can, can you check again? Are you sure? Uh, and but that's what I said. But in my mind, I was thinking, "Come on, guys, like just just do a little googling here. I can help you out." Yeah. Um, so so it's things like that, and obviously, um, yeah. Then you know, subsequently traveling to, to other countries, or I find myself having to educate people. Um, I was I was in uh, a job interview some time back, and. Uh, I had to educate the person interviewing me that all my education from when I was a kid was done in English, uh, and that English is the official language uh, of, of, of Zimbabwe, um, which, which I found fascinating because this was somebody who worked for a highly respected uh, institution. I would assume just a little research uh, would help them. So, so there, there are things like that that you've got to deal with, uh, and, and so I think just being Zimbabwean comes with just being patient, unfortunately, because, uh, yeah, yeah, you know. There must be a lot of interest as well, because um, I don't think I've met anyone from Zimbabwe before. Uh, there, there, there are loads of us. Um, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> we're everywhere. Sure. Um, so, you know, obviously, yeah, with, with, with Zimbabwe experiencing its, its economic challenges in the 90s and you know, carrying on into now, a big chunk of, of, of that middle class left. And, and went to the UK, mostly Australia, the US, uh, you know, generally English-speaking countries. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so, so obviously that plays a part and, and people obviously will assimilate. And by and large, most of the Zimbabweans I know are just, you know, they just you know, get on with their lives, quite polite and get on with it. Um, so, so yeah, yeah, it, it, it definitely does come with with interest, um, but then also at the same time, it's <laughs> confusing. 
to some people, uh, and I and I can understand why. Also. Because of your English accent, right? Yeah. So the way I speak obviously is affected by you know where I've lived and, and my education and all that. Um, and I, I should mention this: I, I had a I did a public speaking course once when I was in college. And, uh, for that period of time, my professor assigned me a, a speech coach. So we would sit there, and, I, and coming from the Zimbabwean uh, and British uh, education background, um, Americans thought I sounded British. I didn't think so, but hey. Um, so, you know, my speech coach would, would sit there and say, it's water, not water. <laughs> Water. I mean, so I still have this like yeah. argument discussion with my wife on a weekly basis. So yeah. 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 So so yeah, just 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 little things like that, <laughs> or you know, you're sitting with your friends and then uh, you say something like, uh, "Hey, I'm just gonna go sit on the bar for a moment." <laughs> and you're like what? Uh, don't you mean you're going to the bathroom? Um, so you know, little little things like that would. <laughs> Well, when I first went to America, I said, I'm going to the toilet. Yeah. And the family I was with was so, like, offended by that. And they're like, what do you mean? What does he mean he's going to the toilet? My friend was like, oh, he's going to the bathroom. Because Americans don't say that. Like, in the UK, we say, I'm going to the toilet. Yeah. But when she described it to me, I'm realizing, like, in their head, yeah. I'm literally going to the toilet, which means I'm going to the toilet bowl. Oh, right. No, I'm going to the bathroom. <laughs> so there's these little things that you're like, Oh, yeah, if I say that incorrectly, or if I say it differently in their minds, they're hearing it, like, completely differently, you know? Yeah. Did you get, did you get tired, or are you still, do you get, do you still get tired of having to have this conversation that I'm having with you right now? Not at all, because it becomes more, uh, more fun. Um, you do you know? ever make stuff up? Uh, yeah, yeah, so I, I met a guy... <laughs> I met a guy. Just to take the piss. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, you've got to have fun with it. Yeah, so, yeah. so I met a guy from Montana. I was, I was still in Missouri at the time. And um, he was just so perplexed by just my existence. Um, and he didn't understand how someone could come from Africa and have somewhat of a normal upbringing and a normal education and then move to America and all this stuff. And so his question to me was, Stuart, how did you get here? Um, so like you say, at some point, like you need to just start, you know, taking it lightly, have fun with yourself. Uh, and I said, uh, Michael, the truth is I'm a prince. And my dad is, 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 is the king of Zimbabwe. And then he stopped and he paused and he stared at me and he said, really? Um, and I said, no, Michael, I'm joking. I'm not really a prince, okay? <laughs> so so it's, it's, it's little moments like that. Uh, or someone will, will, would say, oh, where are you from? And then I'll tell them. And then they'd say, but you speak so well. And then I would return, you know, the favor and say, well, so do you. <laughs> um, Although you probably speak better than them, let's be honest. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I, I get it often because I've lived in various countries around the world and yeah. people will say, oh, so what brought you here? And I'll look at them and go, a plane? 
Um, or another one, actually, another good one is, how did you learn English? And so, uh, you know, I could go into an explanation of the entire history of Zimbabwean colonialism and how the British got to Africa and how there are still Caucasians in Africa, uh, which, which is a whole other kettle of fish that confuses people. Um, so someone asked me, oh, how did you learn English? Uh, instead of explaining, I just turned to them and I said, on the plane, we had tutors. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously because, <laughs> because, you know, people uh, don't know exactly how it works. Some Is maybe, that easy? Uh, yeah, yeah. And it's just, it's, it's nice to kind of have fun with that. I think you have to, you have mm -hmm. to take it lightly sometimes because otherwise you go crazy. <laughs> Well, the reason I asked that was because I, when I lived in America, I got tired of it because I lived in Rhode Island and I lived there for nearly four years. Nearly every time I would go into a shop or I'd go and order a coffee, it'd be like, oh my God, where are you from? How long have you lived here? What do you do for work? What do you do here? And like those same kind of like basic questions. And in the beginning, it's like so exciting. It's like, I'm from Scotland. I've just got here. I've been here two weeks. I'm working at a summer camp. Oh, it's so amazing. I love it here. But by like two, three, four years, you're like, I just want my coffee. Like, can I please just get my coffee? I'm not in the mood to talk today. I've answered this question like 50 times. Now, you're not in your head, so you, you've had this experience as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and one thing I think as, as global nomads that you and I are, uh, I think that we, we uh, have become accustomed to that. I think that happens to us here in Vietnam. Yeah. Um, have you noticed that? Because I think that as an expat, I know the expats just don't ask those questions. So it's much. like we kind of, we kind of, we kind of just assume that we're all on the same boat. Yeah, so we yeah. just kind of get more. I, th I feel like expats just skip past that kind of stuff and yeah. just start to get them to know the person or talk to the person as a a human being or whatever. I don't mean it to be so dramatic like that, but I feel like when you're an expat, it's not like, oh, where are you from? How did you get here? How long have you been? Like, yeah, those questions will, those answers and questions will come out, but it's not like the. Well, do you know what that is, though? It, I think it's probably because uh, people like you and I are minorities here. So we actually have a lot more shared experiences than, than we might first think. Um, so I think as, 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 as fellow travelers, you can relate to a lot of things, being away from home, maybe not having immediate family around and things like that. Um, so what I do like... Uh, then about Saigon is is the sense of community that the expat has. Mm. So how long have you been in Saigon? It's been five years uh, this month. Wow! Years this month. So yeah, I'm just four and a four and a bit now. Yeah, it goes by fast, doesn't it? Really does go by quick. Um, I when I came out to Vietnam, my intention initially was to go to Korea, uh, South Korea, and. Um, I, I had been working, at that time I had been working uh, in Cape Town for uh, a construction and engineering company. And we were building homes at the time. And so after uh, working with them for a while, I, I realized that that's maybe not what I particularly wanted to do with my life. And I felt like I wanted to make more of a human impact. So I always had friends who were teaching um, in in Southeast Asia. Um, a lot of them were in Korea, some were in Japan, some were here. Uh, 
So for a while, I had my sights set on uh, Korea. And then I looked at my budget. I was like, wow, that's probably not going to happen. And so uh, the next available option, which had been recommended by a friend uh, who had lived in both Korea and Vietnam, uh, was, was uh, Vietnam itself. And, and I initially thought this would just be a temporary uh, stepping stone. Um, but then I, I found uh, things that, that I liked about the place and, and things that worked well. And I was able to start out um, uh, expanding on my on my music career, and and also I became an author here in, in Ho Chi Minh City. Well, yeah, I was going to ask about that. So you said uh, I like when you said we were global nomads, right? And uh, and it's so true. And so you've written a book essentially about that, right? Yeah. So tell me more about your book. Right. So so the the book is called Rough Guide to Planet Earth, and it is a memoir about myself living and traveling through uh, 15 different countries. Um, and to highlight some of them, you know, including Zimbabwe, the U.S., uh, Cyprus, Dubai, uh, Vietnam. Um, I also talk about uh, touring uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, Malaysia um, as well. And that's just uh, to name a few. But um, the, the major, I think, I, there are a number of reasons actually why I, decided to write a book. Um, first and foremost, I think, for people at home, for anyone who's traveling, we can always call home and tell them stories about what's happening, but I don't think that they get the full picture. Um, so, for example, uh, I arrived in, in Saigon. Uh, I'll never forget this date, September 15th, 2015. Um, and I had transportation arranged, transportation didn't show up. Um, but luckily I had uh, a friend, a good friend who was staying here. She was uh, a lawyer, she's from San Francisco and she's working for a law company. And so here I am at the airport. I take my selfie, post on Instagram, hey, I've arrived, I'm in Saigon. Everyone's like, yay. Then I put that down and then I call Hillary. I'm like, hey, Hillary, uh, my driver's not here to pick me up. Uh, can you help? She's like, well, Stuart, it's time to put on your big boy pants. Uh, find uh, a taxi. Uh, don't pay above this amount. And go stay in a place called Buebia. <laughs> and just to add, this, 2015 is before Grab, Uber, there's no like ride hailing apps in 2015, so that, that's not even an option. Right, yeah. So I, here I was on a Venus on taxi. Um, and, you know, and then obviously she sends me to like the wildest tourist spot in Ho Chi Minh City. Um, that should be its tagline. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I asked, oh, Hillary, are you coming? Um, am I going to see you? She's like, no, I'm sorry. I, I got work tomorrow. I'll, I'll, I'll see you later. And I know you got this, you can take care of yourself. So in my mind, I'm like, Dad, these, these are my friends. They take care of me at a distance. Um, but anyway, uh, so, so that was, and then I, you know, I, 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 I stayed on Bolivian for a week. And, and I actually thought that the whole of Ho Chi Minh City was like Bolivian Street. Um, I think I probably had some similar thought when I first arrived here. Yeah. 
and um, and then you know getting here and then readjusting and then also finding that um, so I, I had a job prearranged and that was fine uh, but then I realized at some point I was going to run out of money I had accommodation I had everything but I I was waiting for my first paycheck and I was probably going to need about two weeks worth of of, of food um, so the only thing I had was my guitar. So what I did was I Googled top 10 live music venues in the city. And then I just harassed them in every way I could. I called them, I sent them messages, I sent them my videos, I called again. Uh, and then I... What were the venues? There was uh, Acoustic Bar, Saigon Outcast, uh, um, what was the other one? I think it closed down. Um, and then there was also places like Rogue, um, essentially all, all the top 10 places that showed up, I just sent it. Uh, and then I found a place, uh, named Acoustic Bar. Uh, actually, the guy called me after I sent him stuff and he says, come in for an audition today too. Um, I did and I performed uh, a cover song and he was happy with it and he said, can you play tonight? I said, sure. I, I don't have any taxi money even. I can't come back. He says, oh, don't worry. Here's some taxi money. And when you come back, um, sing three songs and you get 50 bucks. The equivalent of 50 US dollars. Like, okay, that's easy. Three songs, $50. Uh, and then I did that. And I kept doing that uh, every night for a week. And, I fed myself, and, and then from there, I realized, okay, wait, I can actually do something with this. Um, and at that time, at that particular place, it's it's a covers bar, so they only wanted people to play covers, which is fine. If you want to pay me to sing somebody else's song, I'm not not overly ecstatic about it, but it's it's a living. And eventually, I I, I had been writing and, and recording music since 2004. Um, so I'll stop and start depending on my situation. Uh, so then I, I, I turned to the songs that I had written. I had a catalog of songs and um, I eventually worked on completing uh, an EP, a full EP, uh, which is now on um, all major distribution uh, networks. And then also uh, I recorded uh, seven music videos uh, and I also directed and edited them myself. This was within the, over the course of the year, um, so so it was it was definitely a uh, a learning process, I could definitely say. Uh, but then also to bring it back to to the book, which is what started all of this. Um, part of the book is also to to give people a behind the scenes look of what it actually takes to you know start up. Uh, as, as a musician, as an indie musician, the things that you need to do. Um, because for, for the followers, all they see are the highlights. Um, but they don't see maybe some points behind. Um, I, I played a gig once, and the owner of the location was just absolutely livid that I had brought my own cameraman. Um, I usually film, film my gigs. And she was just not happy with him. Um, 
And so I had to play a full two-hour gig with that in the back of my mind, knowing that I'm going to have to deal with her, and then she was also going to have to pay me. Um, so, so just those little things, or you organize a tour to go somewhere, and then you're told you can't go into Cambodia because your country doesn't exist. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So they're, they're that's an anticipated problem you couldn't anticipate, right? <laughs> like, you can try and think ahead, like, right, what could go wrong? What do I need to think about? That your country won't exist. To be honest, a lot of Vietnamese people haven't heard of Scotland a lot. When I say I'm from Scotland, blank look. And uh-huh. then kind of once you explain like England, they kind of get it. But because right. there's not even really a, a translation, it's just like see Scotland. Ah, right. Yeah, yeah. And many of them, I just think, haven't heard of it. They, they know England. And so how did you find that experience? Do you have to educate people? I've not, I've not had it in any official capacity, so it's not really been a problem. But it's generally, you know, when someone just goes, oh, where are you from? Maybe not much English as well, so the conversation can't really go very far. Right. And I'm like, oh, Scotland. Ah. And you just see the blank look. They're kind of like, yeah. I had a guy ask me in the gym the other day, was I Dutch? Huh. I get that every now and again because my accent mostly is not so thick anymore because I've lived away for so long. So most people get confused because they can understand me. Mm. Hopefully. Uh, anyone who's a regular listener has probably heard me say this a million times. Mm. But people get confused because I'm quite understandable for a Scottish person in quotation marks. Ah, right. So when the guy said, was I Dutch, it was because he, he was kind of like, well, I, I could understand you and you didn't sound English, so I thought maybe you were from Holland or something like that. Oh, wow. So that's why I get that. Every now and then. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, so, so you see, these are like the, the, the shared experiences. I had, um, so... I mentioned a previous job interview I, I went to before, and somebody asked me about you know my qualifications and whether or not they were in English and all this stuff. And uh, this this person, um, their English proficiency was much lower uh, than mine in that interview. And then they proceeded to ask me, "Hey, have you taken an English proficiency test?" Uh, the IELTS more specifically. And I said, well, no, I don't need it. Well, why would I need the IELTS? I teach it. Um, and her response was that because your country has 14 languages, which technically, yes, it does. There are many different languages spoken. Once again, if you're to travel to Zimbabwe, all the newspapers, all the government, Everything, everything, everything is in English. Yes, there are other languages, but everything is in English. So, so it's yeah. So it's those it's those sorts of little things. Uh, but then, speaking of that, I once had an Irish friend who was asked the same thing. <laughs> so, well, at least it's even then. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> so. Well, I mean, I've been making fun of Irish people lately when I've been doing stand up, saying if they're an English teacher, like, how do you teach the difference between three and three? <laughs> Well, but I asked this, and an Irish person was like, "I have to put on an American accent." And, I, and you heard my joke, I think, the other day. I mean, I'm the same. I've I had to teach journalist. There you go. And I have to say journalist. Like I, I know these things, though. Like I know that it sounds ridiculous. So I'm like, okay, I have to change it. Mm-hmm. So I assume for an Irish person, if they have to teach the word three, yeah. they're not going to be like one, two, three, because <laughs> that would just confuse the hell out of those. Those poor students. Eh? <laughs> but so, have you had much discrimination in Vietnam in terms of 
where you're from, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it, 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 it's a challenge um, in particular industries. If, if, if you're working in, in the ESL industry, it's, it's, it's a challenge. Uh, people will look at your qualifications, be interested, get in touch, chat, chat, okay, please send us your documents, and then, oh, sorry, we're looking for native speakers. And then my response is, I am a native speaker. It's been native since I could talk. Um, and then either, either, and, and you know how Vietnam can be direct uh, in some cases, um, then people would then say either, oh, sorry, we found other more experienced teachers, which, which is fascinating because I know that that's not necessarily true. Um, or which, and, and it's a polite way of saying, okay, you know what we're looking for. Um, or they'll just say, we're looking for real, real Americans. And I'm like, okay. Some of my American friends tell me I speak better English than them, but okay, go for it. Um, so, so it's it's it, at first things like that were uh, a challenge, and I and this is something that I actually do write about. That um, obviously, if you have certain passports, it makes things easier. But at the same time, there are organizations that, if you work hard enough and you have the qualifications, they will, they will actually be safe. So, um, so there's a mix that mix back. And your first name is a very good Scottish first yeah. name. It's basically E W. Yeah, uh, I like that. Is that is that based on any Scottish connection or anything like that? Or um, so it's this was just my my my, my mom and dad. I think um, they they will probably just be forward thinking, uh, futuristic people. Uh, my name's Stuart. My my sister's name is Sally. My brother's name is Adrian. Um, and so, so they give you like the whitest names possible, basically. Like they looked up a book of white names. <laughs> and like, These are the top three: Sally, Stuart, and Adrian. Yeah. There we go. So, so part of it. Also, Sorry, people maybe can't see you. He's black, by the way. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> just so you know. Uh, <laughs> if so, you've not looked at the picture on the podcast. Right. So, so the thing with Zimbabwe is that it's it's also while it has its history with colonialism and, and everything else, by and large the culture is very multicultural, multifaceted. Um, it's like a blend of English slash American culture meets uh, traditional Zimbabwe culture. You always see different elements of 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 both throughout throughout like daily Zimbabwean life. Drive on the left, drink tea like hell, love Christmas. We kept that. Love cricket. Uh, play cricket. Play cricket. Love cricket. I, I I've, I'm struggling to find people who play cricket with. There we go. So, um, if anyone listening that uh, plays cricket, send me an email. Put a message on Facebook for sure. There you go. Um, and so, you know, they're, 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 it's funny the way I look at it. Um, and and this could be with any other country gaining independence. Right? So, so what America did when they gained independence, they're like, "Screw you! We drive on the right now, and we're going to change our numbering system and change this and change this." Just to show you that we're not British. Um, in Zimbabwe's case, we gained independence. Uh, by and large, you know, kicked out the colonialists, but then 
as I've said, we kept the tea, we kept the Jesus, we kept the the uh, cricket, we kept all the nice, or ex- even kept the classism. Um, so, so I always find that very um, fascinating. But then, as a result of that, Zimbabwe is a very multicultural society. So you find that most people, uh, actually, not most, I'll say many people, many people will have. Uh, English first names and Shona or Ndebele or whichever tribe they're from uh, names uh, as their second name. Others will, there are many others who have, you know, sh- uh, traditional first names as well, vice versa. But we mm. find the plan a lot of times. The reason I ask is because, um, and you know J.K. Hobson as well, yeah. a good friend, he's been on the show twice. Yeah. Um, he's talked about, you know, changing his name for the job interview to JK because his real name, Jawanza Kalanji, right. doesn't get you in the door, right? Which right. is terrible. And so my wife is Adria Lopez, now Lopez Mackay. And when, before we were married, we lived in New Zealand. And I bumped into this woman. We were both trying to get jobs within, I can't say it, the industry doesn't matter which one. We were trying to get jobs. And I think I'd gotten, I'd gotten a job already. She was just temping and she was looking for work. And I bumped into this recruiter who'd been helping us. And she's so nice, so well-meaning, and she said, and, and I still feel bad about this because it shows for me how um, backwards, uneducated, ignorant, I don't know the exact word, but, you know, even being married, not at the time, but married now to a person of colour, I'm still not, like, wasn't in that mindset. She said to me, she went, well, you're not married yet, are you? And I was like, no. She said, well, what about your wife just puts down your last name on the form? Because, you know, maybe people see you Lopez and they, like, because she was having trouble trying to find a job yet. And me being me, I was like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea, I'll tell her. And then when I told her, of course, she's like, I'm not going to change my name. They should be hiring me anyway. And then, of course, the penny dropped for me. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's totally racist. Or not, maybe not exactly racist, but she wasn't meaning anything bad by it. She was just giving, like, a piece of advice. But that, again, that opened up my eyes to be like, I mean, I know I'm a white guy, so I'm not exposed to that, right? Like, uh, right. So I don't see that type of racism. Mm. And one thing I read recently in light of the recent kind of Black Lives Matter movement and talking about this kind of discrimination is all job applications shouldn't have a name on it. Just your qualifications? Just your qualifications. You can have just like a, a, an identifying number for whatever to match with. But when it goes to the people who are doing the actual recruitment... All resumes shouldn't have the name on it, and I was like, "That like it's sad that that's a solution, but that would be a, a solution, I think, because it takes mm-hmm. away that look at the name and be like, oh, no, they, we don't want them.' You know, hmm. I I don't know how it is in uh, Scotland, but for me, what I noticed when I lived and worked in the U.S., every sort of job application form had like a checkbox item where you had to identify your your race. And it would say for statistics or whatever. Um, so, yeah, usually there's like black, white, Native American, Asian, I think, and other. Um, I would always stick other. Um, and there would be a blank for, for that other. I would just leave it. I would just put other. And, and, and I think I, I am maybe fortunate in that maybe my... My... my, my First or last name, maybe don't necessarily make people think that I'm African slash African American. Um, 
I think depending on your context, uh, where I am. Um, so, so, and and when I think back about this, if if my name was Laquan McDonald, I probably would have different stories to tell um, with regards to that aspect of life. So I, I still find that, uh, and you're right, I think that would be a fair way, actually. If you remove people's name and you just see the qualifications, you would want to hire that person based on the qualification. Um, it could be a problem when you get to the interview if you're a real racist and you're talking like, oh, okay, yeah, no. Right. And when and you start doing interviews behind on the telephone where you can't see the person, I mean, we shouldn't have to be that extreme, right? But I mean, yeah, we shouldn't have to. But I think if that helps level the will. playing field, and or, or not level the playing field. If that helps take away the level of discrimination, then. It mm. But then you also face challenges, um, particularly, uh, I think, in Southeast Asia in general, the way. Uh, English as a second language is marketed, for example. Um, on the billboards, it's it's mainly you know a picture of a Caucasian person teaching an Asian kid, and and that's what the marketing side of things, as far as the company is concerned, that's what they're trying to market to the parents. Um, and look, I totally get it. It's like, hey, here's a foreigner. A foreigner's going to teach your kid. That's the attraction. Um, but I think the fact that some organizations have, have it as a policy to specifically only hire uh, white or white-looking people from certain countries is, I, I think it sends, it sends the wrong message, and it's also not educating people, right? which, um, which is not necessarily right. So part of, part of me actually being in, in, in Vietnam uh, is personally, I feel like one kid at a time, I can change the future of this country just by being in a classroom and, and doing what a normal teacher does or, or, or doing, you know, doing other things that I love as well. I never mentioned, I, I don't think I've ever mentioned on the podcast uh, who I work for, but I mean, if you Google my name, and I'm pretty active on Facebook. Anyone would know I work. So I work for ILA, and I work at the Community Network, which is the charitable arm of ILA. And I'm extremely proud to work for that company because they don't discriminate. And in terms of you saying marketing, to go back to J.K. Hobson, he's all over their marketing. Like he's always doing marketing shoots for ILA. Like anytime you see their promo stuff, there's J.K. at the front. And they, and my wife has done some promo stuff for there. She's like you know Mexican background, mm-hmm. and I'm very proud that we've. People from, I mean, you've worked for them as well, right? We have Indians. We have a Romanian guy working for us right now because he's, he's a native English speaker. So I'm very proud of that company because they will hire people based on their talent. And and everything you're saying does come through from the parents. Like, I hear stories. I don't deal with it as a stories. And ILA will just be like, nope, they're a teacher. If, they, if a parent was to come and be like, we want a native speaker or something like that, they'd be like, they're a native speaker. We hire them. The, yeah. and, and they don't entertain that and it's part of that edu- we have to not we ILA we as a well, not we even they as an ESL industry right. should take it on themselves to, to educate parents more instead of pandering to that kind of I don't even know is it I don't know the Vietnamese culture enough is it racist or is it just like expectation like why why do they want that white American teacher well uh, 
part of my my sort of look back at it is 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 like this. Um, first of all, the image of beauty number one in Vietnam is is seen as someone who is pale, and that comes traditionally from the fact that if you're pale, it means you're you're, you're well off. You stay indoors most of the time. You can afford the clothes to cover yourself all the time, and if you're darker, then it means you work in the field or you do something else. That was there. I was shocked when I learned that for the first time. I didn't realize that until a few years ago. That's where that definition of beauty comes from. Yeah, right. And and so I think that then seeps in um, because you then had um, occupation by the French, occupation by the Americans, and then there were wars that followed. Um, and I think that with many nations, if, if not all, that have been colonized, I think that they have a touch of Stockholm Syndrome uh, in the sense that even though these were the former oppressors, used to they're like, we kind of like you. <laughs> um, even though you kind of mistreated us, but we kind of like you. Um, so, and not to say that you know, there should be any animosity or anything, but I, I, I think that's like a that's like a general psyche of most former colonies. I, I've gotten the sense of that every time I, I go there. So, so that's you know, there's those two things, and then you also have um, media in general, right? Uh, by and large, the media that people consume here is okay. They have their own local stuff, but when I talk to many of my kids that I work with in class, they, they know exactly what's going on with all the trends in the U.S. and what's on Twitter. They may as well be there. Um, so, so that is also an influence. Um, so, for example, in, in a school that, that, that will hire American teachers, for example, many of their idea of Americans is white Americans. That's, that's what they would expect. Somebody comes and says, I'm American, and then you know, maybe they're uh, Latina, then people might behave differently. So, so it's also partially because of dealing with culturally exported stereotypes as well. So, so I think it's a number of things. But like you see a show like Friends, for example, which I loved growing up. But as I've grown up, I'm like, it's six white people. In like New it, York. In New York. Like, it's not, I've, I've lived in New York. It's not a representative sample of, of New York. And then, then How I Met Your Mother just continued it, which was another six white characters. It was just like, you didn't learn anything from, you couldn't have, like, made it. So th- I guess that, that those, um, where that stereotype comes from, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, Hopefully, though, as people are more exposed to, Western culture, people like myself, people like JK, they see them in more mm. prominent positions and mm. as entertainers and then, you know, the, the, the next generation or even the younger generation in the 20s, 30s, people would be like, this is, a, mm. this is not an accurate this depiction of Americans. And, and, and by and large, since the question centered around being in Vietnam, personally, I, I don't think that generally... Vietnamese people are racist. I don't think that. I think there's a lot of people who are exposed, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, but I wouldn't say that there's anything 
specific or necessarily systematic um, that people try to do. So, so I think sometimes it's just a lack of understanding or a lack of knowledge, lack of exposure. That's interesting. So that, that's good to hear. So you, you feel that you've not really experienced racism here from Vietnamese people outside of potentially the ESL industry? Or is it... Well, okay. So, so I, like to, I like to make sure that, that these terms are defined clearly. Right? Sure. So we can talk about, okay, the extreme. There is racism, right? Then there is racial insensitivity. Then there is racial awareness of yourself and then racial awareness of the other person. Um, so I feel like a lot of times we are as a people, quick to say, whoa, this is racist, uh, instead of looking at it specifically and say, oh, okay, well, that was racially insensitive. Um, but the question is, what is your intent in saying this? What were you actually trying to say? Um, and I feel like nowadays, we're just, if somebody says something wrong or uses the wrong vocabulary, it's like, oh my God, you're racist. Um, and which I don't necessarily think is the case. I think we need to have specific uh, conversations about it to, to actually figure out because there are fine, different fine threads of, of that, that are subsets of racism. Um, you can talk about, yeah, your systematic, your, 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 your casual racism, your um, just your, your basic uh, racial insensitivity that we talked about. So I think it's important to to understand specifically what the context is. Um, so I feel, uh, and part of what I, what I do in the book as well, each country that I visit, I rate my experiences uh, of race relations in that country. Uh, and I, it's, it's, it's a star rating system out of five. Uh, and so I can see in each country that I've been to, um, you know, I, I lived in, in Cape Town, South Africa, and I lived in, in, in the US. Both countries have issues with, with race, but it's not the same. Mm. Um, well, Devin Gray was just on the podcast this season, yeah. who's from South Africa. And he told me, I didn't know this, he's like in South Africa, like there's a, a lot of white people who believe that they are a better race than black people. It's not even just racism, like they still feel like we are different races. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, that... And I can't remember the name, but he talked about a comedian in South Africa who's like, no, we got the good racism here. We, there's like a black comedian there. He's like, we, we got real racism here. And I was like, wait, I didn't even really think that people still thought on those levels, like Leonardo DiCaprio and Django Unchained. Like, mm, mm. I, um, so is that kind of, does that come into your rating system of like... Absolutely, absolutely. I, I mean, um, another example, like... I think when you think of the U.S., the major problem with race, I think, is largely institutional. Largely. Uh, we can talk about um, policing uh, and over-policing, uh, you know, incarceration, incarceration or, or, you know, different sentences for the same crime um, that's committed by, you know, say, a Caucasian. Um, and then we can also talk about stuff like redlining, so financial exclusion. You know, it would be difficult for you to, to, to 
to buy a home even though you have what's needed um, as far as uh, mortgage applications, simply because of the color of your skin. Um, and we can talk about, you know, many other ways, but I feel in the U.S. it's largely an institution. In Not day-to-day? Is that what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, my experience, you know, I, I, I was living in, in Kansas City. Most people would be tempted to think, oh, my God, it's a racist backwater, just cornfields and Dorothy. But that wasn't my experience at all. Actually, people were you know, um, really nice. Um, I never felt in any way, shape, or form out of place in that sense. Um, but then you also then get, um, when you compare it to the South African racism uh, that I experienced, um, it's in your face. It's not subtle or kind of roundabout way or you don't get something and then you start thinking, oh, maybe it's because of that. Uh, no, it's just in your face and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, I remember moving into a new apartment. I was living in a place called Somerset West uh, in Cape Town. And I moved into a new apartment. My housemate uh, was a white South African. So he was gone to work. I was at home. And then a neighbor from all the way across the other block came up to my apartment. And, uh, she knocked and she just started questioning me. You. Uh, how long are you going to be staying here? Did you buy the place? So I was just confused. And so I just, at the time I was working for an engineering company, I just pulled out my business card and I gave it to her and I said, if you have any questions, just call my boss. He'll explain everything. And she just disappeared. Um, or at a place where I was working, I had an individual who would come in and just start the morning off with a racial joke. Uh, oh, hey, Stuart. It was a Chinese guy and a black guy and an Irish guy. I'm like, oh, no. I need to get moving. So I feel like, and also uh, on the South African side, uh, since I worked in the construction industry, I, I also saw I, mean, I worked for, for, for a huge construction company with franchises across the world in the head office. Um, but I was the only black person in, in the entire company, thousands of employees. And that just didn't make sense to me. Um, so, so by and large, the economy as well in South Africa is still very much exclusively one run. Um, so so the, the barriers you'll face there in, in South Africa, your ceiling is much thicker, definitely much thicker. Whereas if I go to the US, even with all the institutional problems, I can do better than I would in South Africa mm-hmm. as far as just based on my merit. Yeah. My last guest um, was lives in Cyprus. So tell me about Cyprus. Cyprus was fascinating. I um, she lives in Paphos. Ah, great. So uh, I, f- I moved to Cyprus um, after having been in the U.S. for a while. I just felt I needed uh, a change. And so I had, I had friends from Cyprus that I went to school with in, in Kansas City. And so I decided to uh, go abroad, and then I, took, uh, I did an exchange program. And I spent uh, six months uh, living on the Turkish side of the island, 
and then I spent uh, another six months living on the Greek side. And what I absolutely loved um, is that I went to a place in the northern part of Cyprus. Um, a, a friend of mine took me to some remote villages. And you know, obviously, America with all its history and racial tensions and everything else. I traveled to Cyprus and we go to this remote village and everyone wanted to invite me into their home, give me tea, we had, you know, Turkish meatballs. And um, it was almost a confusing experience to me because these people were so nice, like it was just who they were. And, and I've, I've never had a feeling like that anywhere else. Like, I just felt so welcome and loved. And people didn't actually care. Like, they weren't concerned um, about where I was from. They were just concerned about me as a person. And, and so I really, I really love that. And, and especially considering this was the northern part of Cyprus. So... Because of Cyprus's history, um, it's divided, and the northern part is uh, less economically advanced. Uh, but on the, on the southern Greek side, that's where all the European Union money comes in, looks super developed, nice roads, everything, uh, great tourist destinations. Uh, but I can tell you that the people in the north treated me better than the people on the Greek side. And, and context here is important. Um, on the Greek side of the island, um, actually in the entire island, there's a huge problem of, of migrants. Um, um, migrants coming from uh, Northern Africa and into Europe. Uh, and so on the Greek side, I think that that problem is bigger because you know, that's the EU side, so everyone's trying to get in. Um, so I, I, I almost felt like I was asked about where I was from more often uh, on that side of the island. Um, or, you know, just random strangers, oh, hey, where are you from? What are you doing here? Um, usually that, that's a polite thing, but the sense I got there was, it's almost like verifying you're not like an illegal. Um, but aside from that experience, as far as diversity goes, on the green side of the island, I, I definitely experienced much more diversity. I, I met people from Sweden and Norway and uh, you know, even learned a few phrases in, in Swedish. And, um, I met people from the UK, the US, just the whole world, you know, Russia. Uh, so, so that was also just a nice experience of like a melting pot slash tourist destination, uh, which, which was really good. And, and, out of all that, um, I, I actually ended up picking quite a few, uh, picking up a few Turkish phrases um, because at that time on, on, on the northern part of the island, um, there weren't that many people yet who spoke English. So I was forced to, to learn, um, you know, through a combination of charades and, <laughs> yeah. and learning basic vocab, I was able to string some stuff together. So out of all the countries you visited then, just quick answer, what's your favorite? 
northern Cyprus because of that village. Ah, uh -huh, that, that cool. Nice. <laughs> well, what we'll do then, we'll move on to finish up to the end to our final questions that I'm going to ask everyone at the end of this season. Um, and so the first one is, there's obviously there's over 7 million bikes in Saigon. And traffic laws here kind of seem to be more of a guideline. Uh, what's an unwritten road rule that you couldn't live without? In Saigon. Saigon or Vietnam. But yeah. If you don't start driving five seconds before the light turns green, you will get on my nerves. Well, on your nerves. I've become Vietnamese. Be, yeah, you know you're Vietnamese then. I've been trying to work that into my material on stage for like since I've started doing comedy. I just haven't thought of a funny way to, to say it yet. But yeah, that's one of my biggest bugbears as well. When you're at the front and it's not even green yet, and the guy five cars behind is honking, and it's like, dude, like inertia. Like you know that like I have to see the light start it, rev the engine, get some momentum going, like. Because there's the Bill Hicks joke, if you heard that one, where he talks about he's watching the light and then he misses the light and the guy behind him beeps and things like this. And so I don't want to copy his joke too much, so that's why I've not been able to use that. But that, that, that gets me like... So now you're that person, though. If you're beeping the horn if someone's not moved as soon as it turns green or even before it turns green. Uh, well, I mean, my, my, my thing is this. Uh, I, I honestly believe that all of us driving here in Ho Chi Minh need a driving lesson. All of us. Um, but I, I, I also think that organized chaos works. Somehow it does. Mm. Yeah. yeah um, and so you said you picked up some Turkish phrases. What's your most useful Vietnamese phrase? Choba, uh, Konga. Okay, so say it again, I think I can translate that. So, right, did I say correct? We've got chicken rice with egg takeaway. Yeah, that's I didn't get the first bit. Uh, What's well, supposed to be choba, uh, which is give me a bowl. Oh, okay. Uh, give me a bowl of rice and chicken and an egg. Take when you said chowa was like, is it dog? Is it market? Is well, it like? Once again, uh, <laughs> my Vietnamese pronunciation sucks. Well, I don't know either. I just know the vague like differences. So I was like, is he asking for dog meat there? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I could end up with that you if could, I say it wrong. You could, yeah. Um, so, what's your favorite sunset spot in Saigon? My favorite sunset spot in Saigon is at a building called Kaudat. District 5. I used to live there. That was the first place I lived at. And I would take the elevator, then take the stairs all the way to the rooftop. And it is a beautiful 360 view of the entire city. Nice. Yeah. It was a little hidden, not even a hidden spot, it's like your own personal. Yeah. This one, the, I, the last episode, the guest who lives in Cyprus, and she's not actually from Saigon, she's from Hanoi originally. Oh. And she's like, why are you asking that question just out of interest? I was like, the sunsets are just beautiful here. And yeah. if you get like a, a good spot, if yeah. you get a rooftop or you know, a rooftop bar or somewhere, yeah. it can be just stunning. Yeah. So would you rather live in Saigon now or 20 years ago? I would rather live in Saigon now um, simply because of the variety of, of, of districts. You have some districts that are ultra-modern, uh, very futuristic. You, you 
thing to live in a Western country. Then you also have some uh, really local Vietnamese districts as well that help you get in touch with the culture. Um, so I, I would have to say now because there are less snakes, less swamps, and more of a variety of places to go and visit. That's cool to go to different districts. I've talked, me and my wife have talked about doing that, but we never have. So what's your favorite district? Um, can I do a top three? Go on. All right. So uh, number three would have to be District 8. That's, that's a good place. Uh, and what I like about it is that there's not much visible Western influence within the district. It's... It's uh, got very good food, very some very good hidden street food places. And also, living in this district forces you to, to learn Vietnamese in some way, shape, or form. Um, and so, moving on to number two, um, it would have to be District 1, because that's, you know, CBD, uh, that's where most of the happening stuff is. And there are also many hidden gems uh, as well. My district one taught me, uh, you know, all my life, uh, people have been telling me, don't walk down an aisle, you know, a dirty alley, 3 a.m. in the morning. But district one and Ho Chi Minh as an extension, I feel totally comfortable walking down any alley at any time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... Number one, I would have to say, is District 3. Uh, And that's because I used to live in a place close to the canal. And on the canal, there are a lot of good places, uh, restaurants, um, and you can go for a walk as well. Um, And then also, it also has, it also has a lot of, like hidden gems as well. Um, you, can find, you can find a lot of variety. I'm, I'm a bit of a foodie as well. So. Right, right. We could do a whole other episode on that. So, so we'll finish there. So, but before we do finish, so tell uh, our listeners where can they find you? Where can they follow you? Where can they get your book? Where can they watch you mute, play music? Right. Um, give us everything that you've got going on right now. So, uh, I just recently published my my first book. And that's available on on Amazon. And then for uh, people in in Vietnam, they can order it direct from me. So they can find me on Facebook uh, or Instagram. And then my uh, EP, Songs on My Bike, that's available on Spotify, uh, YouTube, um, Apple Music, um, any any major distribution. Um, And uh, as far as future plans, uh, my next sort of major step uh, would be to um, work on an uh, audiobook and then also a, uh, an official uh, song uh, to support the audiobook as well. Cool. So that's my next major project. And you perform all over Saigon, right? Right, yes. So I've, I've performed in you know mo- most major places, uh, District 1, uh, District 2, uh, D3 as well. And then I also just like finding small little hole-in-the-wall places um, as well to 
it's kind of it's, it's nice to as an indie author to also work with someone that you can support each other. So, so I'll put all of that in the notes for the show. So if anyone wants to find Stuart, you can look in the show notes, click on the links, and you'll be able to find them, download the book, listen to that album, and all that good stuff. So thank you so much for joining me. It's been awesome to um, chat with you. I always enjoy it. And um, thank you. Yeah, that, that's uh, I, I had a really good time. Uh, yeah, maybe I'll come back and we'll talk about food next time. Wait, if I, I'll do a new podcast based on food. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're like me, you may use your laptop at places where you have to use public Wi-Fi. This opens you up to digital snoopers. It's a massive problem. It can be your internet service provider, or you know who, looking at what you do online, or a cyber criminal trying to steal your bank passwords or credit card info, or even a hacker at the next table trying to steal your sensitive data. These days, it is vital that you keep your data safe. NordVPN keeps all of these snoopers away. It makes your internet activity private, protects you from accessing dangerous websites that are fishing for your data, and lets you enjoy your favorite content securely, even while away from home. And it's easy to use, even I could use it. I've actually been using NordVPN for years now here in Vietnam, and I'm excited to be an affiliate partner with them. I've used NordVPN to watch Netflix, BBC, Disney Plus with ease. And I also know that my information and data are safe from prying eyes, whoever they may be. Join now and you'll get 68% off and three months free when you go to my link, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. Just again, for those hard of hearing, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. The link is also in the show notes. I know nobody checks them out, but go check that out and you can get the link from wherever you are listening to this podcast. As an affiliate partner, it also means that I will get a small commission when you sign up, but at no extra cost to you. So not only will you be getting a great deal through 7 Million Bikes, you get a great VPN and you'll be supporting 7 Million Bikes podcast. Stay safe online and enjoy the shows you love. Any questions, just let me know. You know how to get in touch with me. And thanks for listening to this show. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>